I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times on Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending May 22nd. In this episode, data privacy protections are starting to get enacted in legislation around the world. That legislation has direct ramifications for the technology industry. Today, we have a discussion with technologist and security expert Jack Agawa from Cypress Semiconductor. Also, the most advanced IC foundry in the world, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, said it is planning to build a wafer fab in the U.S. This is a bombshell announcement. We discuss why. Everyone who participates in modern society has their data sucked up by nearly every organization they interact with. Sure, this has been going on for a while, but many of us are only beginning to come to grips with how badly our data can be misused and abused. Meanwhile, the electronics industry is rushing out one networked product after another, and the business world is pursuing one Internet of Things application after another. Even more personal data will be collected and most of it will be shared and potentially exposed on increasingly extensive networks. And the worry is that we are all apt to lose whatever shreds of privacy we have left unless we do something about it. And so legislative bodies around the world are beginning to do something about it. Europe is adopting the position that personal data should remain local. To accommodate that intent, Europe may end up with an entirely different communications network architecture from the rest of the world, one where almost no data gets shipped to far-off data centers, and all data processing occurs at the edge of the network. The state of California recently passed what may be the first U.S. cybersecurity law. It is SB 327. The new law extends existing protections for physical documents to electronic devices dictating that electronics include technology, quote, designed to protect the device and any information contained therein from unauthorized access, destruction, use, modification, or disclosure, unquote. Meanwhile, the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, is in the process of defining recommendations for voluntary cybersecurity measures that manufacturers should consider as they create IoT products and services. That's NIST 8259. Cypress Semiconductor, which was purchased by Infineon last year, provides a line of silicon circuitry supporting the Internet of Things. Jack Agawa is Senior Director of Embedded Security Products. We invited Jack on to talk about the proliferating regulations governing the IoT and how the technology industry is responding. Jack, tell me what uh, the security situation is with the IoT today. Yeah, so we are starting to see uh, uh, political bodies come forward with with the intent to secure end-user privacy or uh, protect end-user privacy, I should say. Um, and, mm. and, it, and it as all these things political go, you, you see things in the different geographies. So in the U.S., uh, California interestingly led the way with, led the way with their Senate Bill 327 that uh, uh, tries to protect again user privacy and we're starting to see Europe come forward as well with that level of detail they, they had GDPR as sort of a higher level uh, guiding principle on how to handle user data but we're seeing organizations there um, dive into more specific IOT oriented uh, uh, legislation. 
Um, interestingly, we haven't seen too much activity out of out of Japan or, or or China, but I would imagine at some point, you know, they would also follow suit and try to address that as well. Mm-hmm. So when we say data privacy, are we also encompassing issues that are involved with data security or, you know, are the responses to, to data privacy issues and concerns the same as data data security concerns? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and it's easy to kind of get lost between those contexts. Um, so, yeah. you know, I, I think in the end, when you think about privacy, it's, it is about data and, it, and it's about access to data. Mm-hmm. And so are you authorized to access the data? Are you authorized to do something with the data when you access it? That That is foundational to the concept of privacy. And, and a good thought model there uh, in terms of how do you decide who gets access to privacy, a good thought model here is uh, the TSA at an airport here in the U.S., where when you walk into an airport, how does the TSA decide to let you through the gate and access the, the sensitive areas in an airport? Well, they check your identity, your passport. Mm-hmm. Now, when you think about that from an IoT perspective, a washing machine doesn't have a passport. It doesn't have its own identity. Right. And so the critical element there really of enabling uh, an IoT device to have an identity then enables the subsequent act of conferring trust to that and then deciding what kind of data it can or can't access. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then in parallel with that, from a user perspective, obviously authenticating you as, as a user, either through user codes or, or, or um, you know, password authentication and the classic application-oriented mm-hmm. authentication. So mm-hmm. the IoT would be the marriage then of authenticating a user, conferring proper privileges on the user, and identifying an actual device and then conferring similar privileges to that device in terms of data access. All right. So um, I I scanned uh, California SB 327. Um, I scanned the NIST document uh, talking about it. There's also uh, some efforts in the UK to define what IoT security will look like. And um, I noticed that uh, they seem to be fairly good at identifying what they mean by security and leaving um, the latitude to the people who have to to uh, create the security measures to do those in the best way that they see fit for for the devices. Is that is that a, a reasonable evaluation of what's going on with the the measures? At least those three measures. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think that they, you know, rightly so, are trying to focus on end results rather than how you achieve those end results. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I look at the NIST document actually as a pretty robust document in terms of that orientation. They talk about they talk about the concept of risk mitigation areas and device capabilities. Right, rather than prescribing, thou shalt use AES as an encryption, you know, protocol, for example. Yeah. Right, so, you know, and you look at device capabilities, um, and it's it's consistent, I think, among all the legislation that you're emerging. Uh, you know, they they try to focus on uh, device identification, kind of in that context of what we just spoke about. Mm-hmm. Device configuration, making sure that the integrity of the device has been maintained uh, as it's been intended. 
data protection that that largely is encryption and and how do you protect data both sitting still in your device as well as being transmitted over a network right um logical access to interfaces meaning how do you protect somebody remotely from coming into a given piece of hardware and and modifying its its uh its uh its capabilities or its functionality um and then finally Associated with that is software firmware update as as the state of the art evolves and how these things are realized, right. making sure that these devices can be updated to to keep up with that uh, that state of the art. Right, right. So um, I've seen uh, companies such as Cypress Infineon, um, some of your your rivals and, and partners, um, looking at. Uh, implementing security measures at the the chip level. Um, there are security measures at the system level. I've seen security measures at the network level. Yep. Um, there's probably <laughs> some other levels as well. There are a lot of, I mean, there's, uh, you know, when you're talking about a network, that's a lot of stuff to protect. And I'm wondering, um, you know, when a company like Infineon uh, implements security measures, um, how far they go, to, how much coverage can you actually provide when your chips have to work in a context of a, of a, um, a, a product, a system, and those systems have to work in a network? Right. I think there's two contexts around how we try to break the problem statement down as, as you defined. Um, there's the technical dimension. And as you're alluding to, there's so many different ways to achieve the, a given end result that might be proposed right. by a piece of legislation or, or an industry standard or whatever. And, you know, in, in that regard, it's not about the technical superiority, perhaps, of one or the other, because the end result's defined. Right, mm-hmm. I need to protect data. As long as you achieve that, even though that feels qualitative, but but by that judgment, if you're able to protect the data, you've accomplished the goal. And so the question, really, at least in our mind, is about cost of ownership of the solution. Meaning, encryption is a well-known technology; it's been around forever. Uh, in fact, you know, you can look at you know payment transactions today as kind of the epitome of a, of a secure system, right? And yeah. and yeah. But even when you look at payments, you know the the deployment of that te- technology is framed around cost of ownership. How much does it cost to put a smart chip into a credit card, right? What what capabilities are in a payment terminal that are commensurate with the risk of that transaction? Right. Right. Meaning, I I could spend millions of dollars making that little swipe terminal at at your at your store very secure, but you know, at the end of the day, I'm protecting, you know, maybe a hundred dollars worth of transaction. Mm-hmm. And then the, you know, and then what's the fraud liability around that? Meaning again, there's a, there's a business frame around how much security you really want to implement. And so, you know, bring that over into the IOT. And for us, when we talk to customers, what we're hearing from our customers is that the legislation that we were talking about earlier actually is triggering an interesting dynamic within them that it's not a technology-driven conversation per se now with the advent of those normalizing forces. They have, like, for example, their lawyers coming to them saying, hey, look, in order to achieve compliance in California, we need to do, you know, these things. 
and we and they need to be defensible, right? N not from the standpoint of is it absolutely secure, but if somebody brings a lawsuit against us in California, is it defensible, you know, relative to the law that's been enacted there? This has been why I've been skeptical about um, about internet security in general for for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you see. Um, a company like I don't want to pick on Target, but Target was it was hit twice, right? It's it's one of those companies that was that was hit twice. Um, you look at uh, the U.S. Department of Defense, who you think would be uh, very good at defense <laughs> being hacked. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, my point of view, and, and you're welcome to disagree with this, but my point of view has always been that there weren't. Um, serious consequences for for lapses or f for making choices about what affordable security might be commensurate to what they think it is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you've got California passing a law, when you've got NIST, you know, creating some, some recommendations, when you've got your own lawyers in your own legal department coming to you saying, pay attention, that's different. Right. Yeah. And, and it's changing the calculus of what commensurate means. Right. That's right. That's right. And, and I think it absolutely is. It is one of these double edged sword kind of scenarios. You know, I, I think that the glass half empty side of this is kind of along the, what you're talking about, which is, hey, in, in an absolute sense, am I secure? And right. and guess what? If you're cutting corners because you're cutting costs, then that's short of that absolute definition, whatever they may be, right? Right. Um, I think there's a positive side, actually, which is, uh, hey, look, if anybody is being ambivalent about security at this point, here's yet another reason why you need to go tackle this. Right, and, right. And, 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 and what I'm finding in, in my experience in talking to OEMs is it's more of that latter situation People are waiting to lean in on security and and they're waiting for that trigger to happen. And and it's interesting. I, I reference back to cost of ownership, but I mean, think about this at a personal level. If you go into a Best Buy, let's just say, uh, mm -hmm. and, and you're shopping for washing machines, some percentage of people are not going to pay extra if you just put on there like, hey, this is a secure IoT implementation, right? They'll mm. just look at that as as yet another bullet on that on that on that flyer. So, you know, there there is this 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 double edgedness, if you will, where we have to have normative forces like legislation, like industry standards emerge to at least mm. deploy security in such a way that it's ubiquitous, and, right? And it's foundational, and and I think that's where we are right now. Uh, eventually, then you'll see the evolution of of how that gets better. And I and and Brian, I love to talk about analogies, but you know, you know, airbags in your car, believe it uh -huh. or not, follow the same trajectory, right? Airbag technology had been around like since the '60s. Oh yeah, but it took laws being passed, you know, 30 years later to actually make them, you know, uh, uh, widely available in automobiles. And I think we're very much in a very analogous situation where. The technology has outpaced society's need to rely on that technology. And mm. so you need these legislative and normative events to get that proliferation going. Uh, and then you'll start to see some advances in that technology that are more along the lines of what you were saying, which is, are we getting more towards that absolute definition of, of secure? Right, right. 
Um, so uh, we've talked about uh, security at a fairly high level. Um, I want to give you the opportunity to, to let me know uh, what what Cypress Infineon is doing, uh, what your approach is to, to designing in security in your products. Yeah. So like I said earlier, I, we're looking at a holistic view when we offer our products and, we, and we're trying mm-hmm. to add value uh, beyond the chip itself because I think We've got great competitors that offer great chips. We offer great chips. I, I think, you know, on any given day, we can debate each other on whose chip is better. But, hey, you know what? You know, there's a greater value that needs to get delivered. And and we look at managing the cost of ownership when it comes to security. Um, and we're focused on two dimensions. One is uh, supply chain costs. And so okay. make, making sure that our products utilize standard volume-oriented supply chains rather than specialized custom supply chains that can be expensive. Okay. Uh, and, and that's important because those costs relatively are, are fixed and common, but, but a lot of IoT applications actually only run several hundred thousand units or, or, or maybe a few million at the most. And so amortizing those costs over those low, low volumes can be cost prohibitive. And so driving those costs down through a standard supply chain through through things that are oriented uh, towards cost efficiency are super important. That's one dimension of our effort. The other dimension of our effort is uh, secure device management. And again, doing that in such a way that, that it's very common and, and uh, uh, standardized. And so from a thought model perspective, you think about any IT organization, they loathe mm-hmm. Uh, customized PCs because mm-hmm. they have to support right. these weird configurations. It's expensive now. You know, I have to hire a guy to, to handle that special case and it just becomes out of control cost efficiency wise. And so efforts like ARM's uh, platform security architecture, where we're trying to normalize technically what security means now has a, the knock-on effect of making secure device management a lot more cost-effective and efficient because those entities are known and defined, and you can you can leverage scale now to to drive your efficiencies down. Um, you know, here at as 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 Cypress slash Infinium, you know, we believe, for example, that the connectivity choices are really important, and so oh. think about think about the choice between Wi-Fi versus cellular, for example. And uh, I, have, right. I have a customer who told me that they had gone ahead and designed cellular, inf- cellular technology and for that connectivity. But because that connectivity or that connection has a per use or per data business model, that's actually adding friction now to that customer's ability to deploy firmware updates. Oh, interesting. And so, yeah. you know, and our philosophy is, look, that's incompatible with what we're striving towards, right? And so Wi-Fi for mm-hmm. us actually is better aligned to our, our view of, of being able to offer uh, uh, a solution that helps with uh, managing your cost of ownership over time, over the life cycle of your product. Well, I feel in a way that's, that's uh, another half of, the, of a response to the question I asked earlier. You've got the, 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 the product itself, you've got you know, uh, the chip, and you've got a network, and um, it's wise to look at how all three of them work in context with each other to come up with a, a good solution for whatever it is you're trying to do, right? That's that's exactly right, and that and that's where we think our edge is, if you will, mm-hmm. is is being able to look at things at that more holistic level, 
because mm-hmm. that's what we're hearing from our customers, right? They're yeah. they're not saying, "Hey, I, I need an you know I, I I don't know where to go to get an 11 AC Wi-Fi chip." I mean, there again, there's right. vendors that are doing that, but we are very strongly hearing from our customers, "Hey, I don't know who to go to when we now start talking about device management." That's that's new to me, right? I know how to design a control panel for a washing machine. But I've never had to deal with the networking aspect of a connected washing machine. And, right. and, and those are real problems that I think are, are, are friction to the IoT marketplace right now. And, and that's what we're trying to attack. Yeah, good. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question. Um, again, the IoT is vast. You've got washing machines and you've got baby monitors and you've got automated vehicles and you've got industrial you know applications keeping track of cargo on trucks and there there there's so many different things uh that the iot is i mean how possible is it really to get um, a common baseline of of security that you can work off of so that you can normalize that across this vast vast space yeah yeah it's hard. It, it really is hard. And I think, you know, at that more of a macro level, thinking through market segments like industrial, consumer, uh, you can even think of medical, for example, as yet even another an, another segment potentially. And so... Yeah, right, right. Right. I, I do think that it's hard to, to span something across those, um, but it does all boil down to very common characteristics. So identifying a device... Maintaining the configuration of a device, protecting the data that the device handles, and, and and then making sure that that device has controlled access, and then finally uh, making sure that that device can be upgraded over time, uh, as state of the art advances. Right, those characteristics absolutely do span all of those segments. Okay. Um, now there may be peculiarities like HIPAA requirements for medical. I, right. I would categorize as a peculiarity. It's more stringent than, say, like, you know, the requirements that California applies for your garage door opener. And, and we probably want that. And we probably want that. Exactly. <laughs> so, but those can get handled in those higher le- levels, I think, right? But those foundational levels that that, that organizations like NIST and, and RMPSA are trying to address, I think that does span across those segments. Ogawa referenced ARM PSA a couple of times. That's the platform security architecture proposed by ARM Holdings, which provides IP cores for many of the processors used in embedded applications. PSA includes specific technological security measures that can be built into embedded silicon, but that's also supported by design tools and a certification process to assure that those security measures were properly implemented. Other chip companies have their own programs. Intel has what it variously calls hardware-enabled security or silicon-enabled security, while Qualcomm has what it calls Qualcomm mobile security. Those are only two of many other examples. I've been talking to computer security experts for years and years, and one of the most consistent complaints I hear is that the electronics industry can provide security capabilities, but if customers, their customers, don't make use of them, there's not a lot anyone else can do about it. The security of the Internet of Things is a subject we'll be coming back to again and again. The majority of the world's IC companies don't actually make their own ICs. Instead, they send their designs to foundries, 
also called wafer fabs, which specialize in actually producing the chips. For the last few years, the biggest, most technologically adept foundry has been the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC. TSMC's only major foundry rival left is Samsung in South Korea. Intel ranks among the most advanced manufacturers, but it doesn't have a foundry business. It produces chips only for internal consumption. So most of the semiconductor companies in the world are utterly dependent on TSMC and Samsung. That includes some of the biggest semiconductor companies in the United States and in China. A couple of years ago, the worldwide foundry business got sucked into the international political scene when the Trump administration launched its trade war against China. Trump is trying to cut off China's access to leading-edge technology. The fact that the world's most advanced IC foundry is based on a small island off the mainland of China is therefore problematic, well, at least from the Trump administration's point of view. And then the COVID-19 pandemic hit, demonstrating to just about everyone in America how problematic it is that the U.S. lacks domestic production capabilities spanning everything from medical ventilators to screws that hold laptops together to integrated circuits. So it was a big deal when TSMC recently announced it was going to build a new fab in the U.S. Other publications broke the news, but then left the story lying there. What does it mean exactly that TSMC plans to build a fab in the U.S.? Because it's absolutely not obvious. EE Times has done subsequent reporting and, Upon further investigation, it's not obvious that TSMC has committed to much of anything at all. We invited our international editor, Junko Yoshida, and our publisher, Bolaji Ojo, to discuss the matter. So first off, Junko, I'd like you to talk about the genesis of the story, how it came about. Yeah, the, the, the story actually was already broken by our competitors like Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg on Thursday. Uh, we already knew that. But Thursday evening, U.S. time, they, uh, TSMC uh, finally made, made it official. They made an announcement that they have plans to build a fab in Arizona. So I happened to be on a call with the um, Asia-Pac team, editorial team in uh, Taipei and Shenzhen. And we talked about this and how we're going to cover it was the uh, biggest uh, you know, topic then. And so we assigned Judith to look into the local angle. And meanwhile, I got in touch with a man in Taipei, Alan Patterson, really experienced uh, veteran uh, reporter that we have in uh, Taiwan. So anyway, that's how it all started. You know, some of our colleagues said that, well, it's a, it's a, it's a story already announced. That why, why, do you, why do you care? I said, no, this is the EE Times story. Our mission is to advance the story, to analyze and advance. E Times covered the semiconductor industry like no other. And this is the time for us, for everybody on the team to rise to the occasion. And what happened was that within uh, several hours, Alan already filed the story and Judith filed her own story uh, in, for the EE Times uh, Asia. And um, when I woke up, after several hours of reading both of their stories, I realized that, you know, wait a minute, because Judith is the one who mentioned that the TSMC in its Chinese press release didn't say it has a plan to build a fab in Arizona. It said it has willingness to build a fab in Arizona. So there's this 
it's a nuanced thing, but it's like, then I realized, well, they didn't even specify which city in Arizona they're going to build a plant. If they're going to start building the shell in 2021, why wouldn't be announcing, why wouldn't they be announcing the city? That got me thinking, wow, is this going to be the same thing with the Foxconn in Wisconsin? Originally, I thought that, well, you know, TSMC is no Foxconn, so that they, they would never break the promise like Foxconn did. But in fact, I realized that there is, an, there is a slight outside chance TS, TSMC might not come through. So that got me thinking, uh, did my own blog, but then I also asked the Alan to go further. How can we advance the story? So Alan ended up talking to Dick Thurston, who used to be the um, TSMC's general counsel. He is outside TSMC now. He works for a different. Uh, um, uh, he's, he works for a law firm, and uh, but he went on the record to give Alan some colors that how TSMC team had looked at the potential of building a fab in the United States over the years. This didn't happen in the last few months. This has been something TSM had been doing, exploration has been doing for some time, but they hadn't been able to pull the trigger until now in terms of the public announcement. Interestingly, uh, Brian, um, I remember that maybe it was only a couple of weeks before this story broke that uh, Junko and I were having our usual editorial chat. And uh, the issue of the TSMC building a fab in the U.S. came up, and we were going to write two different articles with me taking a stance as to I forgotten whether I was going to decide that, uh, uh, you know, they were unlikely no, to do that. You said you're going to do, they're going to do it, and I said they're not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this story, we were already kind of, you know, weighing, you know, the pros and the cons of this particular decision. This this may have seemed to be news to a lot of people, but I think that within the uh, EE Times uh, editorial group, we already knew that this kind of development could happen anytime and were in some ways prepared to advance the story whenever it broke, if it broke. So other publications had the resources and the contacts within the Trump administration to get the news when the United States announced alongside with TSMC that TSMC was citing a fab in the United States. But we had the resources, the global resources, to pursue the story about what it means, how it happened, why it happened, right? Well, that, that, the perspective continues now. That's why we're having this conversation, right? You know, actually, the Alan story was interesting that Alan's latest story, uh, what Dick Thurston was saying, that this is not about TSMC's looking for financial support from the U.S. This is what they're, what they're looking for is really quid pro quo in, in, you know, in terms of the political favor. Um, they're in the big, you know, they're in big time trying to protect their business with high silicon in Taiwan. So even the uh, Trump administration is putting a pressure uh, to say that we're going to put a harder, you know, the stricter regulation on the TSMC doing business with the Huawei. Because of this willingness to build a fab in the United States, the, the, I think the idea is that TSMC somehow will be able to find a loophole to continue to do business with high silicon. 
You, you, the two of you like the political angle. So let me let me shift the discussion here okay. and talk about the, <laughs> the necessity. You know, when you look at TSMC as an organization, and I know you've both been covering this company for quite a while, uh, as, as I have, um, the, the question I ask myself is this. If I was a member of the board of directors of TSMC, what would be the practical reasons why I would say, aside from the politics, we should have a big fab outside of Taiwan and in a place like Arizona. Well, yeah, it, it certainly makes sense from the standpoint of of diversifying your presence in, in terms of simple geography and in terms of geographic markets. But but it's it's not a big fab, right? Twenty thousand wafers. It's it's a tiny. Yeah, yes, yes. It, it's it's actually a tiny fab, uh, but you can expand a fab. Um, I mean, you start with something small, you can expand it, you can add on to it. That I mean, that's what Intel did in Oregon starting decades ago. It, it started small, and, and now Oregon is home to Intel's largest manufacturing hub. So that's possible. So, so in other words, Brian, is, is a, there is a supply chain case here, aside from the political case. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, when, when you look at the likely quid pro quo, if... Your TSMC and you're going to drop ten billion on a fab. That's practically pocket change for TSMC, but but even so, it, it it's real money. If TSMC is going to spend that much money, it's going to want some assurance that it's going to get a, a return on that investment. Um, it was probably asking for some assurance that it, it will have some business for that fab for for eight or or ten years. And that that business won't become a political football. So, so yes, there's there's absolutely a supply chain aspect to all of this. You know, when we talk supply chain, what I what I wonder about sometimes is this: a a, a big deal, a big part of the of the uh, the usage of these of the wafers from here is probably not going to take place in the U.S. You may have them shipping it back all the way to Asia. So. These are these are some of the concerns that companies have to consider, you know. So the question is: Is there enough manufacturing, or will there be enough manufacturing in the U.S., you know, to justify this investment at whatever level of technology node? Yeah, that's true. It, especially back end, right? I mean, they have to ship this somewhere to uh, to to package it. How how much packaging is being done in the U.S. now, as an example? None, none. Some is in Taiwan. I, I believe there might be some in Vietnam, but a lot of it is now in China. So, Brian, should the U.S. be forcing packaging companies also to move to Arizona now too? Well, if the U.S. is serious about maintaining a manufacturing base domestically, it, it should definitely be considering having a packaging operation here in the U.S. I agree, because especially in light of the fact that a lot of integration is happening, not just on the process node, but on packaging itself. This is a great opportunity for U.S. to get into the packaging, really advanced packaging. And advanced packaging is now critical to leading edge chip technology. We're talking about, yeah, 2.5D, 3D, so on and so forth. Chiplets is basically a packaging issue. And if anyone, TSMC is the one foundry who knows this transition, integration transition from the process to packaging. They know better than anybody else. And that's absolutely true. And and again, TSMC doesn't have a lot of competition. Intel is huge, but it makes chips for itself. 
Samsung is a close number two in terms of technology capabilities, but there, there's nobody else after that, really. I think we should revisit this. Certainly, this 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 subject and this topic has legs. We should definitely revisit it. <laughs> it's an ongoing story. No question about that. <laughs> All right, Junko. Bola. Bye. Thank you okay, very much, Brian. Thanks. Great talking with you. Our coverage of the TSMC announcement is on our website. If you visit the site and look up this episode of the Weekly Briefing Podcast, you'll find links to our ongoing coverage. Head over to www.eetimes.com and click on the button that says radio or go straight to www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. Radio, podcasts, yeah, I know. Don't ask. And as another podcast comes to a close, we once again celebrate the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. This week, we're going to enter the Wayback Machine and emerge on May 21st, 1927. That's the day Charles Lindbergh lands in Paris after the first solo flight across the Atlantic. Now, almost 90 years later, a model named Jazz Eggers set a record. And now imagine me making air quotes around the word record for accepting 5,400 dates on Tinder. Lindbergh's record was not that kind of record, something that nobody achieved before because doing so is pointless and sort of sad. Lindbergh was competing for a prize that had been set up to encourage research and development into aviation. It was called the Orteg Prize. It was named after New York City hotelier who offered the challenge in 1920 to fly nonstop from New York to Paris, or vice versa. The first transatlantic flight had already occurred in 1919. British aviators John Alcock and Arthur Brown had flown from Newfoundland to Ireland, a distance of roughly 2,000 miles. But by the way, in 1901, Guglielmo Marconi achieved the first transatlantic wireless transmission going from Newfoundland to Cornwall in England. Canada to the United Kingdom was a conveniently shorter hop across the Atlantic for just about everybody. Now back to Raymond Ortega in 1920, who put up a $25,000 prize purse for the first Paris to New York flight. And then we jump ahead again, this time to 1925, because during the intervening five years, nobody was able to build a plane that could go the 3,600 miles from New York to Paris. Ortega's challenge elapsed in 1925. So he renewed it. In 1926, the French Great War flying ace, René Funk, with the backing of helicopter pioneer Igor Sikorsky, made the first attempt to gain the prize. Funk failed. By 1927, there were several crews preparing to compete for the Orteg Prize, including one involving polar explorer Richard Byrd, who was backed by Dutch aircraft manufacturer Anthony Fokker and another led by a hotshot barnstormer named Clarence Chamberlain, who the month before had set an aviation endurance record with co-pilot Bert Acosta. Lindbergh was an unknown airmail pilot backed by financiers in St. Louis, hence the name of his craft. He was a late entrant vying for the prize. All the other competitors used tri-motors and flew with more than one person aboard. One team after another crashed. Yet another team was lost over the ocean. 
Lindbergh decided to fly a plane with a single motor and do it solo. He took off from Roosevelt Field on May 20th and arrived in Paris 33 hours later. The engine sounds you hear are from an accurate replica of the Spirit of St. Louis that was built only a few years ago. Interestingly, the next solo flight across the Atlantic was accomplished five years to the day later. On May 20th in 1932, Amelia Earhart took off from Newfoundland and arrived in Ireland the next day. That's it for this week. As they say, time flies like an arrow, but fruit flies like a banana. The weekly briefing is available on iTunes, Android, Spotify, Stitcher, and Blueberry. But if you get to the podcast via our website, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned and sometimes other goodies. Visit www.eetimes.com and click where it says radio to find the full archive of podcasts. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Craig McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.